0: Hi everyone, I'm Sam Callen. Welcome to this podcast. This podcast is an audio version of a monthly conference call that is done for national governing body coach educators and developers here in the United States. And I've made this an audio version only because so many people consume uh, podcast information on the go on their daily commute or while exercising. So I want an audio version of this. If you want to see the video version in the show notes, there's a link to the that has the original uh, monthly call. So with that I'm going to go to uh, this month's call and thank you for joining us.
1: There we go. And if you want to chat, I'll be monitoring this. If you see the little bubble up there in the dashboard, you type the question in there, then I'll pass it along to Wayne. And with that, I'm going to turn this over to uh, Wayne goes. Let me let me intro Wayne a little bit here. If so I can get my slides to work, but also um, Wayne's been on my radar for quite a while. But Tom Avishus at Swimming really uh, kind of got you highlighted by sending me your articles, Unscrambling the egg, and I thought it would be a good chance for Wayne to talk to us about uh, his thoughts on coaching education and maybe some areas that we have we, we've gone awry. I think, and I will I will call myself guilty of that as well. So, Wayne, with that, um, I'm going to turn it over to you, and I'm going to mute myself here now.
2: Uh, Thank thank you, Sam, and good morning, everybody. And before you try to adjust your audio, yes, I am an Australian. You haven't stumbled into uh, Steve Irwin movie by mistake. Uh, This is is me. So uh, thanks again for the opportunity, Sam. Just a technical thing. If this audio... Isn't uh, all it can be. I can redial him on a landline, so please feel free to jump in. And so the audio isn't quite as good as it could be, and I'll change phones and I'll be a, a moment or two. Hang up. Uh, yeah. Good morning. My time it's 8 a.m. on Valentine's Day, so happy Valentine's Day to everybody uh, in Australia. Uh, as coach education has been around in one form or another. For a long time. From my recollection, I'm 57 and uh, I remember first hearing about developing coaches in the late 70s, 1970s. The Canadians picked up and ran with some interesting models around levels and systems, which were subsequently copied by the Australians. And we formed in the early 1980s an organisation called the Australian Coaching Council. And it was a national body. It was based in Canberra, our national capital, adjacent to the Australian Institute of Sport, which is not dissimilar to the Colorado Springs Training Centre, and I've been there several times. And they went about it as a national governing body, if you like, or a national institute, to work with sports governing bodies and implement a systematic development process of coaches level one, level two, level three, and so on. And for the most part, the national sporting bodies around Australia in the 1980s took up the levels system and were running courses and conferences and clinics and all those things that you would expect to see in a national coach education uh, system. Along comes the 1990s, that's becoming very popular and what the Australian government did at that stage is to say to sports, we will give you money, we will fund you. However, you must have a levels System of coaching. So, if you like, the the federal government, the national government mandated that all sports must have a level one, level two, level three system. And for a little while, that coach education through compliance, which was largely a risk management exercise, to be honest, uh, it grew and we had tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of coaches across all sports accredited or licensed, if you like with a level one, a level two, or a level three, level three being the highest. And that system, which really grew out of Eastern Europe and then Canada in the 70s and 80s, really perpetuated Australia, New Zealand, England, and other parts of the world in the 80s, the 90s, and the two thousand. And I've been a part of that system. And I have to tell you now where I am after 25 years in the business, I think we've got it terribly wrong. And what we're seeing internationally is the number of people who are starting coaching courses, the number of people who are actually starting it is significantly lower than it was many years ago. Not only that, the number of people who are progressing from level one to level two or level two to level three is at an all-time low. And the number of people who are voluntarily upskilling by doing a formal accreditation process is very low. And, And these patterns... I'm seeing in many, many places around the world, and it's not dissimilar to what some of the universities and colleges are seeing as well from their products that that they're offering. At the same time, we know that competitive sport itself, competitive sport around the world is in real trouble. We know that the number of kids who are engaging in competitive sport around the world is dropping, and this is a global issue. We're seeing it in hockey in Canada, in rugby in New Zealand, in swimming in Australia, in football in England, we're seeing a global shift towards a decline in the number of kids committing to competitive sport. The number of people who want to be active, of course, is very high because of the government moves against obesity and the government moves towards wellness. But in terms of children and families committing to competitive sport, we're seeing a deep decline there. Now, in response to that, what a lot of sports have done is come up with modified sports or half-court basketball or mini-golf. They've come up with a whole range of modified games to try and get people to, to commit to a different version of the game. And that's been tried again all over the world for the last four or five years, and it hasn't really worked very well. The one area that we haven't seriously attacked and really approached with any real enthusiasm and energy is coaching. I'm going to give you a great example. You can imagine, you can imagine somebody watched this. I watched the Super Bowl last week, and what a fantastic game. Doesn't matter who you, you support. Um, I suppose if you're a Patriots fan, you weren't that excited, but for everybody else, great game, lots of yards, a couple of great uh, quarterbacks, some, a really incredible spectacle. Now, you imagine little boys and little girls all over the United States see that game and go, man, I want to do that. It's so cool. I want to run with the ball. I want to throw the ball. I want to learn how to play that amazing national game of American football. So they turn up at the local park or the local club or they they go to the local school and the coach who's been there for 25 years, 30 years, has always done things the same way, always done the things, had the same approach, looks at them and says, If you want to play football, you've got to run yards, you've got to do laps, you've got to go to the gym, and immediately has a disconnect with these two young kids that are really excited about playing the game. And, guys, what we've basically done with our accreditation of coaches, we've made it so much about sports science, so much about exercise physiology, and I am a physiologist, so I'm allowed to speak ill of my people, that um, we've made it so much science-focused that we've got multiple generations of coaches who believe coaching is nothing more than exercise prescription, volume, intensity, frequency, flexibility, core stability, and so on. We've got uh, an accreditation system based on science. My question is, who is coaching coaches to coach? Who's actually coaching someone to look into the eyes of that little boy and little girl who just want to play football and say, this is going to be great. This will be a wonderful experience. I'm going to make this interesting, engaging, exciting for you. What's your motivation for being here? How can I create an environment that will help you to fall in love with the game of football so that that love of the game of football will be lifelong? But we've become so obsessed, coaches, and this, again, it came out of the 70s, the 80s, and in the 90s, so many coaches have based their coach education not on coaching, not on, you know, but if, if you... If you grab a group of coach developers in a room and you say to them, what's coaching about? Or even if you grab 30, 40 baseball coaches and put them in a room and you say, guys, tell me about coaching. What is coaching? They'll all say things like inspiring the heart of young children and uh, touching the minds and hearts and inspiring change through emotional connection. It's about commitment and dedication. It's about passion. It's about drive. It's about enthusiasm. None of those things are in our textbooks. None of those things are in our coaching courses. Who's actually coaching coaches to coach? At the moment, what we're doing, because of the way we've always done it, and it's all based on physiology, biomechanics, psychology, nutrition, because we've based our coach development, coach education on the sciences, that those, those important subtleties of human relationships and inspiring the hearts and minds of young children. Who's coaching that? It's almost like running a medical degree, but only teaching law subjects and hoping to end up with great doctors. Or it's like teaching, having an engineering course at university, but only teaching accountancy and assuming that they'll, have, they'll be good engineers at the end. We, we talk about coaching, And we all believe in in the qualities of great coaches and the capacity of coaching to change lives. But when we actually get them in front of a screen or in a classroom or in a conference, we bombard them with VO2 max and and threshold concepts and uh, adenosine triphosphate and three-dimensional imaging. We bombard them with science. I'm not anti-science. I'm a passionate and I've led national sports science and research committees here in three different sports, so I am very pro-science in its right place with elite athletes who are working towards achieving success at the highest level. The majority of people in our business, guys, 99% of our workforce are parents, are volunteers, are part-timers who just are there with an opportunity to change the hearts and minds of young kids, create an environment and experience where kids can learn to love the sport and develop skills, build friendships, and so on. But we're not teaching them to do those things. So some little lead coach, little lead coach goes to a, a coaching course. What do we, we hit them with? We hit them with terminal velocities of, of bats. We hit them with how to improve vastus medialis. We talk to them about Pilates programs and, and the impact of high-protein diets. What we really need to be doing, colleagues, is how do we coach coaches to coach? Now, the challenge, of course, for all of us, if you're running courses, the easiest thing to do is to put up PowerPoint slides, to put out manuals, and to develop books and resources, which are highly expensive. I was just saying to Sam before I came on air, I hate PowerPoint. If anyone here works for Microsoft, I apologise, but I hate PowerPoint with an absolute passion because it it, is, it it develops mediocrity in course presenters. It stops course presenters from connecting with their audience. It stops coaches from connecting with each other. And I don't use it. I can use it, but I don't use it. But when I travel around the world, colleagues, what I see as our excuse for coach education, is two days full of PowerPoint slides and content and text and books and handouts and none of those things really are going to help people learn the art of coaching. I often talk about two concepts and I want to share those with you. There's the art of coaching and the science of coaching. Everyone's obsessed. As coach developers, we are obsessed as are many coaches with the science of coaching. Volume, intensity, frequency, planning, programming, periodization. That's what I call, that's the science of coaching. If you like, that's the content of coaching. But every time a coach writes a training session, every time a coach writes a training workout, they do so with the, with the assumption that the athlete will do the content with the intent with which it was written. So I'll go through that again. So we're, we're obsessed with teaching coaches volume, intensity, frequency, skill sets, skill practices, workout routines, periodization. That's the science of sport. That's the science of coaching, if you like. And if you're, I, I call it the content of coaching. But every time we write a workout, every time we build a training session, We deliver the session with the assumption that the athletes will do the content with the intent with which we wrote it. In our coach development activities, colleagues, so much of our time is spent on the content. But the art of coaching, the real art that it is, and it is an art form, the art that it is lies in our capacity to inspire the hearts and minds of our athletes to do the work with the intent with which it was written. And this blending of science and art is there all the time with good coaches. But my question again to you, as coaches, as coach developers, as coach educators, who is coaching the coaches to coach? People, when they take up coach education and they commence the coaching journey, they become obsessed with workouts. They want to copy the routines of the major league teams. They want to see what Michael Phelps is doing or what. Eddie Reese, the great coach, a good friend of mine, University of Texas, Austin, they want to see what they're doing and they want to copy workouts because they believe that it's the content, the sets, the reps, the repeats, the drill practices, the skill workouts that defines greatness in coaching. When you've been in it for a while, and I'm sure you'll agree with me, colleagues, is you know that that's not the case. It's not those easy to feel those tangible things that make the difference. It's the intangible things. It's it's the qualities that coaches can inspire. Um, conversation I want to share with you, a great friend of mine, David Marsh, one of the U.S. national team swimming coaches, wonderful guy, very smart guy. I was invited to spend a day with the U.S. swimming team here before the last Pan Pacific Swimming Championships, which were based on the Gold Coast in Australia where I live. And David Marsh and I were walking up and, deck, up and down on deck and, and watching the U.S. swimmers train, which is a really strange thing for me as an Australian because the U.S. swimming team is the enemy, if you like. I know you might find that terminology hard to, to grasp, but as an Australian swimming coach and as someone who's been involved in swimming for a long time, we view the Americans as the team to beat and the toughest athletes for 100 years, the toughest athletes to beat. And so there I was in the, in the heart of the enemy, and talking to this great American coach, David Marsh. And I said, Marshy, what, what do you believe are the qualities of greatness? What do you see in athletes? And he coached Ryan Lochte and, of course, people like Katie Ledecky and Missy Franklin and Phelps were all in the pool at that moment. And I said, what do you see? And he said, to me, it's as simple as commitment. And I said, I agree, Marshy. I said, but our problem as coach developers is this we can coach speed, we can coach endurance, we can coach skill. But the art of coaching is can you coach commitment? Or for that matter, can you coach confidence? Can you coach character? Can you coach values? And David Marsh had this wonderful phrase I want to share with you. David Marsh said, he said, I believe you can coach commitment. He said, I believe that in any given situation, A committed athlete, when given the choice between doing things the easy way or the hard way, will choose to do things the hard way. And I said, that's a great line, Marshy. I'll use that again. But I said, what does that mean? And he said, well, he said, our art form as coaches, we present the workouts, we present the content of the workout, which we've learned from our courses and our conferences and so on. But where the art form is is we've educated, trained, and developed the athlete to know that if they choose, if the athlete chooses to do things the hard way or, if you like, the right way, that they will achieve everything they ever wanted and will realize their potential. And he said it's interesting that so many people will copy our workouts and will look at our workout design and what exercises we do in the gym, but none of it matters unless the coaches can actually coach the character and the values and the virtues and those intangible things that make the workout special. And again, colleagues, I come back to you and say, who in your sport, who in your program, who in your colleges, who is coaching coaches to coach? Who is coaching the art of coaching? Because that's where it is. I often say to people in courses and conferences and say, knowledge in sport these days is worthless and I, I go on to say that anyone can get anything anywhere anytime for free in the palm of their hand the content of your sport besets the, the reps the workouts the skill practices the tactics and the strategies those things 20 years ago that was an advantage to know those things your knowledge as a coach 20 years ago was your advantage now everyone knows what you know. There are no secrets. If someone in swimming in, in Texas does something, it's usually on Twitter half an hour after workout, which means children in Scotland are then going to copy it and kids in Australia have already got it on video. We're in a world where everyone knows what everyone else knows. Your knowledge of content, of workout designs, of periodization and planning, that's not your edge to coaching that. So if you accept that, that knowledge and the what of coaching is not your advantage, then what we need to be doing, colleagues, as educators and developers, is coaching the how and the why of coaching. We need to be coaching the art of coaching, particularly in high performance now that if everyone knows what everyone knows, and I promise you, certainly in swimming, we We know what the Americans are doing. They know what we're doing. We know what the English are doing. We know what the Germans are doing we know everyone knows what everyone else is doing, then the edge has got to come from something other than workout design, something other than training routine, something other than periodization. And of course, that comes down to the art of coaches and their capacity to work with their athletes and inspire their hearts and minds through outstanding coaching. Whatever level of coaching that you're working with, as a developer, as a coach, as a coach educator. Have a look at what's happening in your sport. If you're seeing the numbers of kids in your competitive side as juniors declining, look at your coaches. If your coaches, and by extension, your coach education, coach development routines, are not based around inspiring the hearts and minds of children, embracing families, creating enjoyable, exciting experiences, that's as far as you need to look to explain why your numbers of competitive young athletes is declining. If you look at the top end of your coaching, if you look at your elite level coaches and you're seeing that they're not competing successfully internationally, they're not winning medals, they're not competing higher at professional level. Again, accepting that everyone knows what everyone else knows, go back to your coaching and your coach developing. I think I I, I did some research last year and I was horrified to find out that in in England, Australia and New Zealand, no sport, not one sport is spending more than 2%, two, no more than 2% of their total budget on coaches or coach development. Yet in their strategic plans, they all claim that coaches and coaching are the very heart, it's one of the pillars of success of their entire sport, but they allocate almost no money, no time and no resources to developing great coaches at every level of their sport. It doesn't make any sense. It's like someone saying they care deeply about their diet but spending less than 2% of their weekly budget on fruit, vegetables, grains and healthy foods. It doesn't make any sense to say We believe coaches and coaching is critically important, but we're going to spend no time or money developing it. However, colleagues, and and this is maybe a key point and maybe a good one to finish on, what I am starting to see increasingly and very, very happily around the world is sporting bodies are starting to look more at coaches and coaching as the cornerstone of what they want to achieve at every level. We're starting to see sports, instead of, running modified games and spending millions of dollars on marketing. Increasingly, we're seeing sports spend more money, more time, more effort, and more thinking on how can they create better coaches? How can we help those coaches get better? How can we continually improve the quality of our coaches and coaching? Finally, after and, and if you're in the industry, it seems very obvious to you, and certainly to me, that, to so many people. Coaches are the sport. They're the connection between the family and the sport is the coach. Very few sport very few families can tell you who is the state director of marketing for baseball or who's on the board of the NFL. Very few families can tell you that, but they know how their coach has the coffee. They know what color car their coach drives. They know what colour is their coach's favorite shirt. The connection between sport and families and athletes is the coach. The coaches in so many sports are the sport. And finally, I'm starting to see colleagues, and I'm so happy about this, that increasingly sporting organisations are turning towards coaches and saying we need to help our coaches get better. We need to work with our coaches and our coach developers because if our coaches are better, Our coaches are improving, our coaches are learning, our sport will flourish. It's not going to be easy, it never is. And what I'm seeing, for those of you who are in what I call the big time commitment sports, swimming, athletics, rowing, gymnastics, high diving, those sports are the ones that are struggling the most around the world. The ones who are married, if you like, to very old, very traditional, very volume orientated, hard work, huge, huge amounts of work programs. They're the ones that are struggling the most at the moment. They're the ones that seem to be the most resistant to change. The ones at the other end, the sporting success stories that I'm seeing are doing well, are generally the professional football, professional, but they're the ones who actually get it and understand that they've got to do different things and do things differently to flourish and succeed. Those of you that are in the Olympic sports with those big-time commitments... You've got a real fight on your hands, guys, because the resistance to change is greatest in some of those really high time commitment sports where they fall back on history and tradition and habit as their only defence for not changing. And as someone from swimming, I understand that more than anybody and I will certainly understand what you're going through. But if we don't impact and we don't change the way we're coaching and the way we're developing coaches, then in some cases, certainly in some states, in your case, and in rural and regional areas, some of those Olympic sports will die. And I can't put it any more direct or more honestly than that. The numbers that we're seeing in competitive sport, particularly in those Olympic sports where big time commitments are required from family and athletes, in rural, regional, country areas, we're seeing the sports die completely. In my view... Very much, my view, is that it's about coaches and coaching hanging on to methods and techniques and tactics of coaching, which really needed to be changed and challenged 10 years ago. And hopefully, hopefully it's not too late, but I do have some fears. So, Sam, what I'd like to do then, I don't know if you've got some follow-up questions, if you'd like to jump in, but that's really my presentation about where I think coaches, coaching and coach development is at. And I'm happy now to go on to any questions or questions from you or for any of my colleagues.
1: Yeah, let me just uh, remind folks, if you want to, uh, two ways, you can either type the question in the little chat box, the little bubble up there on the dashboard, or if you have a question that you don't want to necessarily type out because you're like me and don't type well, uh, if you just want to write, write question in there, then I will unmute you and let you do that. So I'll give folks a chance to do that. Um, Wayne, I, I am a uh, exercise physiologist by training and started my coaching education world in, at, in cycling, which is a very science-intensive sport. And it took me a while to come around and understand that, you know, you're you're coaching people, not sports, as someone has said, and I wish I knew who said it because it's a great uh, quote. Um, I have question here from... Um, from John Kessel. How do you see technology changing the coaching education process in the future from level one and up to? Wayne, did I lose you?
2: No, no, I've I've, I've still got you, yeah. Um, Yeah, look, excellent. Excellent question. Uh, I'm talking with a group here at the moment about how can we use technology in a way that's actually going to impact on coaching? I'm not a big fan of online learning for coaches apart from absolute basic minimum standard risk management. So having a set of resources online for things like safety, communication, basic programming principles, those sorts of things. But in terms of actual coaching, I think what technology might offer us is the capacity to show coaches what it looks like. And I'm working with a sport here at the moment where we've got some cameras set up around the training environment and you can come in live and watch two or three very, very good, very experienced coaches actually coaching. And the reason that I've suggested that to them as as an idea is that Coaches, particularly in rural and regional areas, in country areas, who don't have access to good coach developing opportunities or conferences and so on, they can log in through their device and actually see coaches coaching. And they can get a copy of the workout if they want, but they can actually see and most importantly, they can hear coaches connecting with, talking with their athletes and my recommendation to this sport, and it's an Olympic sport, is that they set up a few of these, if you like, you know, coach centers of excellence where coaches around the world or coaches around Australia can log in and say, wow, that's how you communicate with junior athletes. That's how you organize a practice so that everybody gets optimal practice time. That's how you coordinate a training session through team coaching and they can see it and we've got the coaches mic'd up as well so they can hear the tone of voice, they can hear the language, they can hear the subtleties of coaching. I think that represents a tremendous opportunity for all sports is to find, I hate using the word best practice because getting better never stops and success is a moving target. That Best practice only exists for a fraction of a moment at best. But if you can find a best practice coaching program where you think that's the way to coach, those coaches or that coach or that program really gets it. Video, mic them up, have people come in live and go, wow, I get it now. I see what it looks like. There's a great phrase that says, if you can see it, you can be it. And I think one of the things we haven't been able to do, or maybe we haven't spent enough time and effort on, is finding ways of showing coaches what coaching actually looks like and hearing the the voice of coaches. That's, I think, the the great advantage. Um, And that's certainly something that I'm I'm doing at the moment that I think has got great potential.
1: You you know, Wayne, it's interesting because uh, in the United States, in the last day or two, uh, Steve Kerr, who is the coach of the Golden State Warriors, just said something pretty amazing during an NBA game basically turned the clipboard over to one of his players and said, here, you draw up the play. You guys kind of coach yourselves tonight. And <laughs> I thought that was fascinating. I mean, here's a guy who's coached, you know, a team that's won the World Championship, had the best record in, in the NBA, you know, one ever in one year. And he did something really neat. And I think that's a video moment that can easily be captured and shown to, to people. And, you know, it, it wasn't set up that way, but why not use it? So. Um, yeah, exactly. and I, I think that's what
2: the technology does and uh, I've been doing some work in professional football here where we've been, uh, we've been putting microphones on the leaders during practice so we can hear their leadership language and we can hear the way that they're talking to other players. And I've got to say quite disappointingly that the majority of leadership for so many football players just seems to be expletive language. But um, what we're able to do with that then is sit down with them and say, okay, now I can hear and understand the way you're communicating, connecting with players on the field because our football is a little different to yours. Outside of the quarterback, as I understand it, in American football, there's not a lot of communication between players. I may have that completely wrong, but certainly in Australian rules football, in rugby football, the players who lead on field, they generally lead and direct plays from field with very little connection with the coach, um, except for breaks, which we have about every 40 minutes. So what we, we need to know is how are our players leading? So again, we're using technology in that format where they're wearing microphones during practice so we can hear what they're saying. Then we can coach them and coach their leadership language to be more effective when they're leading on the field during practice and during games.
1: Well, well, as a uh, as a fan of American football and particularly college football, sadly the trend has been going, going towards actually more of the coaches having more control over the actual in-game stuff than they did many years ago. Um, so anyway, I'll, I'll move. I'll get off my soapbox on that one. Um, Michael had a question here about you. You had uh, thrown out a two percent of budget number and he asked did that come from australian sport ngbs or is that a stat from across all sports in the world
2: now that's australian sport ngbs and new zealand sport ngbs and several sport ngbs in uh, england Uh, they're the only ones that i had access to the information that i was looking at and i I was i was i was i wasn't surprised but I was horrified in many ways, purely because of the the contradiction in what the organizations are stating to what's happening in reality. They're saying and their strategic plans, the strategic planning documents that are online will all say coaching is critical. We invest in our coaches, but when you actually see the data in those three countries, what it's saying is the opposite is saying, yeah, we might value it and we might believe it's important, but we're not going to support it and we're not going to put serious money in it. And I think that that it's difficult to do, of course, but I think we've got to start challenging our NGBs in the, their, their commitment to seriously supporting coaches and coach development if they believe that it's important. If they don't believe it's important, well, don't worry about it but where they're actually making a public statement through their strategic documents that this is critical to us, then they've got to back that and support that with a genuine commitment to resourcing and time and and focus as a critical aspect of their of, of their governance.
1: Uh, and a quick follow-up to that one. Do you know if that included or excluded salaries? Uh,
2: no, no. It's salaries in terms of paying coaches or paying... Now, I'm talking about investment in money, uh, investment in terms of um, coach development activities, coach developers, so coach developer salaries, not actual coaches, not too many. So in some sports, for example, where they're actually funding coaches, they're paying coaches professionally, that would be excluded because that'll be in the professional budget anyway. But no, that figure is investment in... Um, coaching courses, coaching conferences, coaching workshops, coach developers, so people who actually specifically recruited and hired to be working with coaches, coaching salary separate to that.
1: Okay. Um, got another question here from Joe. Um, how does how does this translate to volunteer coaches who are not professionals in sport? and have full-time jobs away from the sport, which is a very common thing here in the U.S., especially amongst our major sports uh, setups.
2: Yeah, wonderful question, Joe, and thank you for asking. I can, I can put it, I'll give you some examples that um, a game like soccer, a game like football, the way that we've done it and the way that it's been done in so many countries around the world in terms of a coach Education or a coach development course, a level one course, what's typically happened is the volunteer parents, the, the part-time, the amateur parents who are the lifeblood of sport, the ones without them, we have no sport. Um, I, I think in most sports, 90% or greater of our workforce are volunteer amateur parents who have other jobs. That what we've done, Joe, in the past, is they've come into a coaching course, and our level ones here in Australia and Canada and England and so on are not that dissimilar, that session one on the first morning, so these courses normally run all day Saturday and Sunday, session one is normally physiology of exercise. So some parent who during the day is a plumber or an electrician or a car mechanic comes in and says, look, I just want to learn how to help 10-year-olds kick a football The first session we've thrown at them has been how to spell adenosine triphosphate, uh, discussions of mitochondrial volume density, uh, electron transport shuttles. The poor guy sitting there going, man, I left high school at 15 to study a trade course. I'm just here to learn how do I put a smile on these kids' faces? How do I get them to come back next week? How do I connect with their parents? How do I make it enjoyable and safe? How do I develop friendships and foster uh, a love of the sport? That's what he's come to learn because he knows that's what amateur part-time volunteer coaching is all about. But instead, we've bombarded these poor suckers with physiology and then session two, acquisition of sports techniques, let's talk about vectors, let's talk about um, biomechanics, let's talk about acceleration profiles. All right, session three, let's talk about psychology. uh, Yerkes-Dodson-Inverted-U concepts. We have bombarded these poor volunteers with science because it's easy to teach. In answer to your question, we've got to get all that out of there. Those volunteers that are coming in to learn, or if we're going out to spend time with them, give them the practices. Don't spend time teaching them periodisation. Why does... a volunteer dad or mum, mom working with eight-year-old basketball players, why do they need to learn to paradise? Why do they need to learn anything to do with bumper theory, methodology, and training? The number one responsibility of working with eight-year-olds is get them to come back next week with a smile on their face. So I'm saying to people who are running coaching courses, get rid of, at that beginner level, Get rid of all the things they don't need. If it's a 10-week season, give them 10 weeks of training programs. Give them that. So give it to them on on an app. Give it to them on their smart device so they don't have to write workouts. They don't have to come up with... Give them all that stuff. But when we educate them and when we work with them, let's give them the things that they really need. Connection with human beings. Understanding of human beings. Capacity to inspire capacity to create great experiences enjoyable moments for families and children let's teach them how to do the things that will actually make their lives better as amateur volunteer part-time coaches let's get rid of the science at that level and bring it in sure bring it in if the athlete is 14 15 and says i want to be exceptional i want to be the best in the world but that's not what a seven or eight year old is saying they're saying I want to have a good time. I want to get fit. I want to have friends. I want a great experience. I want to learn something that's really going to excite me. That's what they're saying. The cornerstone, the key for us, Joe, has got to be teaching coaches at that level to do those things.
1: Well, Wayne, that, that ties in wonderfully with last month's uh, session was with Jean Cote on transformational coaching. and Towards the end of that, uh, somebody asked a question about, you know, which do you teach first? Kind of a transformational coaching ideas or technique and skill. And um, he didn't have an answer for that question necessarily. And, and my thought is you got to give them a blend of a little bit of both. I mean, they've got to be able to leave there knowing how to run a, a soccer practice or a football practice, but they should also be aware of, you know, some of the, the some of those softer things that you mentioned, how to get the kid to have fun and come back the next week. as as uh, as John Kessel says, you know his goal was never to be a kid's last coach, and I think that's a you know that's an admirable goal to I mean for youth sport coaches particularly. Yeah. Um. All right. Well, I am seeing no more questions in the queue here, um, and so I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up and say thank you for taking time out of your morning. I know you. Uh, You you drop your kids off and then rush to get on this call, and I do appreciate it. For those of us in the states, it's getting towards the end of our workday as yours is the beginning. And um, once again, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts with our group, and I think giving us all a little kick in the seat of the pants to uh, remind ourselves that, one, we do need to train our coach developers better, and also that um, there's a lot more to coaching than knowing Uh, energy systems and stuff which I love dearly and have to remind myself of as well.
2: Well, look, I thank you, Sam, and I thank you to my my colleagues and um, my friends in the United States. Years ago, I heard a phrase that said, if you want to change your life, become a coach. If you want to change somebody else's life, become a coach. But if you want to change the nation, coach the coaches the influence that you guys can have and that that I feel that I have by coaching coaches, the impact that we then have not just on those coaches who attend our courses, but on our entire sport is significant and considerable and never underestimate that your skill and your capacity, your ability as an educator to influence and impact on the life of one coach then scales up to influence the lives maybe of thousands of athletes over the course of that coach's career. If you want to change a life, become a coach. If you want to change your sport, if you want to change a nation, coach the coaches. So let's get out there and really change our nations.
1: Fantastic, and thanks. And as a wrap-up, um, Wayne said that he would send me um, an email with a link to some resources that he has on his site, which is moregold.com.au. And I will pass that along to the group as well, we'll post it on the U.S. Coach Excellence and Coach Developer Network page as well. So, with that, uh, Wayne, I'm getting lots of thank yous from folks, and um, thanking you for taking the time and, and sharing your thoughts with us. And I appreciate everybody who called in. And with that, I will uh, bring this close to a uh, bring this call to a close. Thanks, everybody.
2: So you guys. Good evening. Goodbye. Thank you.
0: Hey, once again, thanks for joining us on this audio podcast. I want to uh, put a shout out to Lee Rosefair, who provided the music for the uh, intro as well as for this credit roll. So, thank you, and good luck in your coaching.